0: It's time for another Shadow Talk. In this week's episode, in part one, we will look at the return of the Loft Hackers twenty years after they first presented. We look at what's changed and what's remained the same in the world of cyber security. In part two, we we'll look at the news of Mastercard's war gaming setup and ask how can smaller organisations and not just large banks do this too? All in this week's Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome listeners to another edition of Shadow Talk. With me today we have Dr. Richard Gold. Dr. Doctor, doctor, how are you?
1: I'm very well. Thank you for having me on again.
0: Yeah, we've got Raphael as well. Hello, Ralph. Hi, Mike. Happy to be here. Excellent. So we've got a few things to talk about today. I think we'll cut it into two parts. Uh, I think we should start off by talking about the news that Loft hackers came back to Senate to give their, uh, their briefing and an alternative version of the one they gave 20 years ago. And I think there's a few interesting lessons from the things that have remained the same in security and the things that have changed as well. Perhaps it might be good to just remind ourselves of what happened 20 years ago, why they're invited and sort of the significance of that as well. Sure thing.
1: So The Loft was a hacker group a long time ago, back in the mid to late nineties. they The term, the name The Loft actually came from a loft that they had above a carpentry shop in Boston, South End. And there are about seven to eight hackers who were very, very curious, very, very smart. And they kind of set the tone for many of the issues in cybersecurity that we still have today. So they did a lot of work on vulnerabilities, a lot of work on building tools, and often found themselves involved in the legal implications that happened back then as the law was a lot less mature and the uh in- makers and enforcers of the law were much less savvy of these issues than they than they are today although we still see many interesting laws and applications of them um, now so they went to the they were invited to attend the Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs and they had a bit of a bombshell to drop they said that one of them in this case, Mudge, could disrupt the entire internet of the United States in 30 minutes. Now it was a bold claim and got picked up by the mainstream media outlets. Got a lot of of press, obviously a lot of hysteria. We see still the same things today when there's a large outbreak or attack like WannaCry or NonPetya. And in this case, there was some truth to that. So Mudge had found a vulnerability in BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol, which is used to share routing information between ISPs. And in particular, it was a implement, an implementation flaw. So he could feed certain input into a router that would make it crash. But before it would crash, the router would send this poisoned information out to the other routers it was connected to, and they would crash. And before they crash, they would also send out the poisoned information to the routers that they were connected to, and so it would create this cascade. And as he said in the testimony, it would cause an internet-wide outage. So it was a pretty, pretty nice flaw that he found. Um, after the hearing, as a result, there was a secure BGP working group set up in the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is responsible for the standardization of internet protocols. And 20 years later, it's um, basically not being used.
0: We don't hear any news anymore about BGP hijacking or any router problems, do we? So that's,
1: that seems to have been sent to the security graveyard. Indeed, BGP hijacking has not been in the news lately. So. Cloudflare's DNS server 1.1.1 was not BGP hijacked by an organization in China, but yeah, of course, joking aside, we still, still see a lot of interesting issues around BGP and BGP hijacking. It's always very difficult, though, to separate what is intentional versus what is accidental. It's very easy to make mistakes, especially because there's a very, very large number of organizations now connected to the internet. and with a very, let's say, diverse skill set. But it's easy to make mistakes, and these mistakes can have far-reaching consequences. And we don't know how to, it's very difficult without really deep analysis to know and and, and access to information, whether or not something was intentional. So obviously there's uh,
0: continual stuff about vulnerabilities in routers or uh, security flaws and not secure, as they should be. uh, Has that been a similar problem to before, uh, or have there
1: been different types of problems routers And What's been the evolution across that? Things have changed in that we are more aware of these things. So if you want to, you can find pretty good guidance on how to handle passwords reasonably well, how to store them in a secure fashion, how to generate them, what the complexity requirements should be. And the Loft, for example they wrote a tool called Loftcrack which was for cracking Windows passwords and they'd identified some weaknesses in the cryptography or how it was used in Windows back then. They said that when they were doing one assessment they found one password being used by 700 users in one network. That password was change me. So we still see issues with networking equipment having hard-coded passwords and it's a very common attack
2: vector still to this day. So Rich, I was wondering if you could um, talk a bit more on something that I found quite interesting in some of the reporting around this. So uh, some of the law speakers were saying how when they appeared before Congress for the first time, hackers, hackers in that time were mainly individuals or young people trying to earn a reputation. And what they're saying is that the threats today are a lot more diverse, cybercrime is a, more, a lot more diverse You've got international crime rings and then you've also got nation states, which they say they didn't necessarily foresee the rise of nation state groups as we see now. Um, I was wondering what the ramifications of what they're saying are and exactly what they mean by that.
1: So one thing's for sure, we're certainly a lot more dependent on the internet now than we ever were back in the mid-90s. So that creates a lot more opportunity for cybercrime as most commerce is done through electronic means, whether or not it's accepting credit card payments from customers, whether or not it's funds transfer between organizations. And so threat actors have a lot more to work with now than they, than they did before. And the nation state thing is quite interesting. So I believe that some of the earliest nation state activity that's been publicly discussed was absolutely going on around this time that the loft did their original testimony. However, I think for the, the hacker community, they really saw themselves in kind of their own, in their own world. And of course they did, the loft were were known for doing pro bono consultancy for government agencies, including the NSA. But I think they really saw themselves as their own community, they're doing their own thing, and that they were really the only ones who were doing it. I think of course, back then it was very hard to get in touch with other people who were doing the same kind of work so, unless you knew them directly, or you knew someone, or you knew someone, or there was a BPS that you shared, it would be hard to really know what else was going on. And since then, we've had things like the Snowden leaks, we've had many APT reports from vendors. So our access to information about that is a lot higher than it was back then. Back then it was a very, very closely guided secret. And I'd also split it into two parts. There's sort of computer network exploitation activity, which is like the domain of the APT groups and these kind of things, which is something, one thing that they call out, but the other thing that they call out is the disinformation campaigns that we've seen in recent times, or rather traditional disinformation campaigns, making their way onto the internet, taking advantage of social media of modern marketing and advertising techniques. And hey, listeners, if you do want to hear more about
0: disinformation campaigns, why not swing by at 2pm in the Strategy Talks at Infosec in London this week? Uh, You can hear more about that indeed, can't you, Rich?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, with that, there's obviously a lot more overlap now between hacking groups, governments and industry as well. And that's been arguably a success uh, in the way it's developed. And that is a difference between now and 20 years ago. Not to be too negative, because in their most recent testimony, they were talking about the improvements made in security over the 20 years. And we can sometimes be overly cynical, but maybe it's worth dwelling on the improvements that we've seen and have a good positive shout out to a few people
1: as well. Absolutely. The Loft very correctly, in my opinion, called out the improvements that have happened in operating systems and browsers in the last 20 years. I mean, if you look at what we were using back then, Windows 95 and IE, compared to Windows 10, Edge, Chrome, Mac OS, iOS, these systems are dramatically different in the security properties that they have. All kinds of, in all kinds of ways that maybe that deserves a podcast of its own one day, but Things like, and this is what the Loft call out, network segmentation, okay, so that's more for organizations, but strong cryptography, multi-factor authentication, I would say also the hardening against exploitation is massively different than it was 20 years ago. And one of the things that they call out, though, is that many vendors continue to bundle what they call flashy security products, quote unquote that introduce new attack surfaces instead of simplifying their code bases or performing attack surface reduction. And I think this is a really powerful concept. You simply can't attack something which isn't there.
0: And on to part two itself, uh, we are going to talk about the news. There was an interesting article this week uh, with one of the guys at MasterCard talking about how they're using wargaming and other militaristic language and techniques within their their security team. And this had some pretty interesting lessons for particularly large banks to begin with. Um, what can we learn about how MasterCard are using it and how potentially
1: you can apply it if you are a large bank to begin with. So the three things that were really singled out in that article the use of what they call combat exercises which for me is testing the processes that you have in place for incident response and disaster recovery and I really see that as moving between knowing that you have a plan so what you have you have a plan and having confidence in your ability to execute that plan so how well can you use that plan and as the The saying goes, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, and no incident response plan survives first contact with its first incident. The second thing that they call out was the usage of intelligence hubs modeled on those used in counterterrorism work. For me, this seems like good old-fashioned info sharing, which is uh, quite, quite popular these days. Certainly gets a lot of press in the policy world when people talk about attempting to uh, improve cybersecurity. Yeah, why not? And then the third thing was the usage of threat analysts who monitor the internet's shadowy corners, apparently. For me, this is simply understanding the adversaries, understanding
2: how they operate, understanding what their goals are, and understanding their TTPs. So building on what Rich just said, for me, there was there's a couple of reasons why This sort of overlap between information security, the industry and the military um, is not that very surprising. So the first and probably most obvious one is you have such an overlap in terms of technology and personnel. So with former military individuals moving into the infosec space, it's not surprising to see the techniques, methodologies and approaches used in military scenarios to then be applied to a non-military context. The other thing for me that's quite interesting is that when we think of critical national infrastructure uh I mean our minds immediately turn to the power stations electricity grids, but the reality is financial systems are also really critical these days so the fact that these very big financial organizations whether they're banks central banks uh or credit unions or credit card services like masterCard yeah it doesn't it's not very surprising for them to be employing these these quite large, maybe militaristic techniques as well to, to preserving what in essence is also part of the critical infrastructure of, of many countries around the world.
0: Yeah, and when you often see within these large organisations, you've got references to the red teams, the blue teams, the purple teams, maybe some threat-led penetration testing, then you've got war gaming, you've got scenario planning. But
1: I always get a little bit confused between all of these terms. So in military exercises, there's typically a blue team, which is doing the protective work. And then there's a red team, which is playing the role of the attacker. So red teams when it comes to the cyber world are the offensive teams. Now purple team is uh, something which is quite a new phrase in in the cyber world, but it's something I like a lot. And that's when you have the red team and the blue team working together. So they're combined to make the purple team. That's something that we've had quite a lot of success with internally. And it's a way that the red team operate, the red team operates with the full knowledge of the blue team and vice versa. As a result, everybody learns, and this is a very effective way to bootstrap security processes internally. Now, a war game for me, at least is a much bigger scenario. So that's something like we've seen NATO have this Lock Shields exercise, which is one of the world's largest cyber defense exercise. They have teams all over the world, and they have a multi-day scenario that's very complex and is uh, really as attempt to be as realistic as possible. So that for me would be be more a war game. Another thing that's also very very popular and very useful. We've also had success with that as tabletop exercises. This is very useful for things where you can't really do them for real easily. Distributed denial of service attacks are of course one example. It's difficult to take yourself offline through a large amount of traffic without upsetting your ISP or your customers. But it's really good to think through what would happen if one Did occur, who would you call? Who's involved? Who are the key stakeholders? How would you respond?
2: Another sort of technique we can add to that is the idea of creating playbooks, which we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. I think usually we talk about it in the ransomware context. So you don't want to be testing your backup systems, assigning responsibilities, carrying out all the different procedures and incident response for the first time during a real attack. The benefit of staging something like a ransomware drill and having a, a, a playbook, whether it's like a tabletop exercise or just making sure everyone knows their roles, is that when the time actually comes, it'll be a lot easier, people know their responsibilities. And that extends beyond incident response teams, security teams. It also includes how would your PR team, for example, handle uh, a ransomware situation, an extortion attempt? And also, obviously, are your backups effective? That's one of the main things you're trying to find out.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the big things, having the... Uh having to do the PR responses on top of everything else that you've got to deal with as part of the that scenario and being able to deal with that pressure that you know is going to come up with these things because we know typically that it's not always the best with the PR responses from whether that's your CEO or your head of security and that can make or break a situation in many cases. I think the Equifax um, and previous ones as well have been great examples of that.
2: Going back to red teaming, blue teaming, purple teaming, Uh, I had a question from you, Rich. So there's an assumption that you need a specially trained team with a lot of resources, high technical sophistication to carry out these type of exercises. Now, the reality is most organizations and most teams don't have that at their disposal. So are these type of exercises something only large enterprises can afford to employ, or do you think there are lessons for small and medium-sized teams and firms as well? That's a really good question.
1: My experience is that you can have a lot of value from these kinds of approaches without having to execute at the the level of sophistication of a large bank. Some of these large financial organizations, they have internal red teams, dedicated functions specifically for this task. Other organizations will contract in an external red team. But if you want to get value out of these, these drills, I think you can, even with security capability that's just starting, you can get a lot of value out of it. You can look at what are the commodity threats, for example, phishing, ransomware, as you've already mentioned, these kinds of things. And you can try something in your own environment, obviously in a safe way. But for example, can you can you send yourself a phishing email? Now, You don't necessarily have to be operating at the level of an APT actor, just to make sure that your systems are working in the way that you intended. One of my favorite quotes on security is from Rob Joyce, who used to be the head of NSA TEO. And he said that, you know the technologies you've intended to use in that network. We know the technologies that are actually in use in that network. So just with that in mind, spending time to really get to know your environment and to test that your preventative controls are functioning in the way that you expect. You can do that even on a small scale, in my opinion, and still have some good results. Of course, the more sophisticated that you can make it, the more resources you can put into it, the more value you will get back. But even for for an organization, which is just beginning to deploy a security capability, Testing the processes, testing the technologies, even in a simple way, will give you some assurance that things are functioning in in the way that they're supposed to. And as I said, the getting to really know your environment. Yeah, and sometimes the militaristic language can make it appear more confusing
0: than it perhaps needs to be. And just doing a simple phishing test campaign could be just as useful for testing how you're prepared against that, as as you've just said. Okay, I, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Um, but perhaps we can, in future weeks, dig into things like threat models and how that ties into this and uh, have a bit more dedicated time for that. Thank you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's Shadow Talk. For more information and resources, visit resources.digitalshadows.com.